Well, good morning. Hey, thanks for braving the cold weather and coming to hang out with us this morning. Uh, let's just give a shout out to our parking lot guys. They all survived. We appreciate them, and I was out there for service and just decided I'm not tough enough to be out there for two services, so uh, we really appreciate them. Hey, we are um, in our week two, uh, though it is a couple weeks into the year, we are in week two of our series. Uh, we're all freaking out and why we don't need to, and uh, this series is based off a book uh, with the same title uh, by David Marvin. Uh, if you are encouraged by any of this or want to know more, I'd encourage you to pick up that book. Uh, you can find it anywhere that books are sold, uh, pretty much. Uh, they are selling it there. Um, but this week, and uh, we're going to do things a little bit different. I'm going to be sitting down, and I'm going to be looking at my notes a little bit more because um, there's going to be some really important things and some really practical things we want to talk about today. So I'd encourage you, um, if you don't have uh, notes or a place to take notes, in front of you is a program, and there's a spot for notes in there. Um, we'd love uh, for you to take some notes on this because we're going to be talking really practically today about an issue that I don't think... Um, we get to hear practical things about a lot, and it's something that we really deal with a lot. We're going to be talking about uh, battling depression today um, and what that looks like and how Scripture's called us to do that. And um, I, I've spoke openly with you for the five years that I've been preaching here that um, depression is very much a part of my story. Um, it is very much a part of where I came from and, and how God found me. And um, it, it's been my experience that, unfortunately, though often well-intentioned, the church has and church at large has really kind of missed on this conversation or perhaps not handled this conversation with the most amount of grace because if you have never wrestled with it yourself, if you've never walked through it, it's really hard to articulate. Um, it's really hard to understand and it's really hard to uh, bring clarity to it when it's something that's hard for even those who deal with it to put words uh, to it. And so today what I want is just a conversation about um, what we believe Scripture would call us to do with this, how we ought to handle it. Um, but maybe you're here and you've never dealt with depression and you say, I don't, I don't know. Um, you may put some different words on it. Um, it may be extreme sadness. It may be a heaviness of heart. Um, it may be just a downer season. Uh, maybe there's been a loss, as we as a community have experienced several very uh, deep losses uh, recently, that it has a way of pulling down on our heart. And so this conversation is for you as well. And, and maybe you're here and you're just um, one of those people who never loses your smile. Um, but the truth is you probably know somebody uh, who wrestles with this. Um, as I said, it is an incredibly prevalent thing in our culture and, and around us. But recently, in the last 10 years, um, the statistic has gone to one out of every five people has wrestled with at least mild depression in the last two weeks. Um, that number has doubled in 10 years. And I don't think life has gotten significantly harder in 10 years. It's still just as difficult as it was 10 years ago. Now there's some new challenges. Um, but why has the number doubled? What, what's gone wrong? What has our answer been? What has our response been? Are we missing something? Um, is there something new we're not understanding? And, and I don't have the answers to that today, but I, I just want it to be in front of us that it's incredibly prevalent. One out of 36 individuals uh, are going to wrestle with severe depression, um, leading all the way to um, reduced eating, um, trouble with speech, trouble with thinking, trouble with sleeping, one out of 36. And I know that number is actually falsely uh, low because the reality is there's still a pretty large stigma around talking around mental health issues. And so that number is actually probably significantly higher than that statistic even 
uh, shows us. And so wherever you are, wherever you're coming from, I, I hope you find hope today. Uh, if you're wrestling with this yourself, I hope you find some helpful answers here. Or if you know somebody, um, I hope to better equip you to have a conversation as a believer or even as a non-believer to have a helpful conversation with someone um, who does struggle with that. We're going to read through a bunch of stuff and a bunch of passages. If you don't get a chance to write them down, I can post uh, the keynote later with all this information on our closed Facebook page. Uh, if you would like, I can do that. But um, the battle really begins for the believer with this, um, with deciding what we're going to anchor truth to. Um, the battle of depression and, and heaviness and sadness is really um, a battle largely of are my feelings and my experience true or is there something else that's true that I have to subject my feelings and experience to? Psalms chapter 34 verse 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The battle against um, lifelong depression and sadness really is the, the battle of whether this verse is true or not. Because if this verse is true, even in my heaviness, in my sadness, it means God is near. And not only is he near, he is moving to rescue me in this feeling. But if this isn't true, if God isn't moving towards us, if God isn't close to the brokenhearted, then all of the feelings of depression find validation. And so it really begins with our understanding of the character of God. Is he a God who is moving towards those in dark places? Will he come rescue us? And so we're going to talk today from the position that we believe that to be true. And if you're here and you don't believe that to be true, we'd love to have a conversation with you. I would love to have a conversation with you about how that really is true and how God would reveal himself to you in that way. Because I want to anchor all of my life truth to something beyond me. And that's really a way in which we Win. So I want to talk with two questions today. Um, what is true of depression um, is kind of our first question. And then how do we battle de um, depression? So uh, what is true of depression is, is the first thing is that it's real. It is very real. Maybe you have heard this if you wrestled with it. I know I certainly heard it uh, growing up that it, it's all in your head. People just tell me, oh, it's all in your head. That's true. It is all in my head. You know what else is all in your head? If I were to light your hand on fire this morning... And you'd say, this hurts. i say, no, 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 it's all in your head. Your hand doesn't hurt, right? Your hand lacks the ability to feel pain. It is your brain that has receptors that picks up the, the nerve endings that tells you to be in pain. And so really all pain is in your head, which means the emotional pain that you feel can be, and you know this to be true, I don't have to tell you this, it can be more debilitating and hurtful than physical pain. It is a real thing that is experienced. And if you offered somebody who wrestles severely with depression, if you offered them, hey, if I break your arm, um, your depression goes away, I can tell you they would grab a sledgehammer and hand it to you and say, yes, please, right? And I, the reason I say that is because if you've never wrestled with it, it's hard to quantify what that feels like. And it feels like perhaps self-harm or death would feel better and what it feels like right now, which is why often depression leads to self-harm and suicide, which is part of my story, because the pain is real. And here's the other stigma that we have to break. Um, if you're tough, you don't feel it, right? Like, we have to drop that, and here's why. King David in the Old Testament was manlier than any one of you sitting in this room, all right? I don't care how strong you are, I just don't care. You are not a warrior fighting people with a sword and chasing down giants. Like, he is a man's man. And here's what he says. 
I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. A man's man saying, I feel the depths of pain. And he illustrates with words something that can be hard to articulate. He's drowning in his tears in bed, immobilized by the pain. A man's man, well acquainted with what is going on inside of him. The second thing about uh, depression that is true is that it's not sinful. Um, this is one that I, I had to tackle uh, uh, early on. I went to a Christian school, and it, it was just kind of a confusing environment for me at times as I wrestled through this, but it's not sinful. Um, the feeling itself is not sinful, right? If you are nauseous this morning, it is not sinful to be nauseous. Now, if you're nauseous because you were drunk last night and you're hungover, right, there's a different conversation there, but the feeling itself is not sin. And what happens is if we begin to feel like, and if you've been walking through this for a while as a Christian, you can begin to think, I shouldn't be thinking this way. It's wrong to think this way. It's ungodly to think this way. Therefore, I'm sinning. And it just drives guilt and shame even further down into your mind that you feel this way and you can't shake it. See, it's not, it's not sinful. Some of the, the godliest people in the Bible wrestled with this. Elijah, Jeremiah, Naomi, Jonah, David, Job, right? Really godly people that we look up to had to walk through this season. See, it's not sinful to be heavy-hearted in certain seasons of our life. And sometimes it's appropriate to be heavy-hearted. Another thing that's really interesting about this not being sinful is how Jesus is described in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus is described in a really surprising way. It says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Now, I'm not saying Jesus wrestled with depression, but what this text reveals to us is that even God himself is well acquainted with the human experience of pain, sorrow, and suffering. He says he was well acquainted. He was familiar with pain. He knew what it was to feel what you feel in this life. And so even mature believers ought to be familiar with and acquainted with the difficulties of life. Now, maybe they may not be your difficulties, but our ability to empathize with that pain is a mark of our Savior because he empathized with our pain. We'll talk more about that later. The next thing that's true about our depression is that it has a cause. There is a reason that those who feel the way they feel, it, it, it is a real cost. Now, for some, it's um, biological. There may be some chemical imbalances in there that um, are, are real and they're heavy, and often uh, medication will need to be involved to um, work with some of those. That is a very, very real thing. Someone in my family um, wrestles with that, and it needs medication. Other times, it's uh, other physical triggers that can cause depression, the loss of a loved one, um, a trauma, an accident, a head trauma. It can literally break something in your brain the same way you would break a bone. Um, and it can be hard at times to quantify a trauma because you're in um, what we would often call fight or flight mode, um, but it'll sneak up on you afterwards and something doesn't seem right, and it's because something has emotionally broken in there that needs to be healed, repaired, and, and worked on. And often, a professional counselor is, is very appropriate for something or in a situation like that. 
The other big one, and this perhaps is one of the leading um, contributors to what we would call mild depression, uh, would be worry and anxiety. Now, worry and anxiety have a way of eating away at your soul. Um, th- there is uh, thoughts that you think or worries that you worry about long enough that begin to tear down your ability to function in the way that you would need to be able to function. And, and uh, Proverbs says it this way, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Right, that anxiety, it begins to kind of pull down at us, which is why when I hear people say how much news they listen to, and then they call their worried friends, and they talk about all the news they were listening to. Like, I don't watch the news, but I was watching a basketball game the other day, and the news came on in between, and I was like, oh, should I be worried about that? Right? Like, it, it's not my personality at all, but it just instantly hit me, and I thought, oh, man. If that's all we're ingesting is being around complainers and listening to doomsday, like it will eventually erode our ability to function in the way we need to function. And so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But another cause could be a spiritual reason. Um, This is one that I think the church may have overused at times, but I would never want to minimize this reality because we are spiritual beings. Listen to what David says in Psalms 32. Same guy. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped up as in the heat of summer. He's talking about kind of that depressive weight. And he says, verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There are times in our life Whereas believers and non-believers, God will let us, and let me frame this properly, God will let us feel the full weight of our sin. It is his grace in our life that he would allow us to feel that we are choosing death. When we choose sin, we choose rebellion against God, and we choose ultimately choices that will rob us of joy. And so what it David is talking about here is that there was something in his life, there was a sin he was hiding on, there was something he was hanging on to, and God was allowing him to feel it that he might turn and walk away from what was harming him. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have life abundant. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Sin will ultimately and always rob us of our joy. And so that, that may be true. I'm not going to say that is true for all of us, but it may be a reason why God in his graciousness has allowed us to feel the weight of that, that we might turn and find life and life abundant. The other one is, is just kind of circumstances. Um, maybe there's something tragic. You lost uh, your job, a kid turned against you, you lost a loved one, right? Those, those things have a way, like as you read the story of Job, um, his kids died. Everybody kind of either turned their back on him or died. Everything was stolen from him. Like there was good reason to feel heavy in that season. And it was an appropriate response to the season and he was walking through. And I think that's one of the things that I hope you walk away with today is that there is an appropriate place in the Christian heart for grief, sorrow, and suffering. There is an appropriate time for that. And it does not make you ungodly. In fact, it probably means you understand the heart of your Savior pretty well. So why are we talking about all these uh, causes? Well, it's kind of like a stomach problem. Um, I I was battling with some really bad stomach things last year, as many of you know. And I went to many doctors. And one of the doctors, um, I was kind of explaining. And he said, well, that could be a hundred different things. (laughs) Well, that's helpful. Like, how do we heal it? And he goes, well, you could need surgery. You could need chemotherapy. Or you could just need to go to the bathroom. 
all right, well, that doesn't help me at all, right? And six doctors later, I still never found an answer. God um, has helped that situation out greatly. Um, but depression can feel like that at times. See, it can feel like this giant, ominous thing that just is all-consuming. And if you're trying to move forward, you don't even know where to begin. And so naming it's half the battle. Identifying perhaps a few key things that you need to hone in on. Maybe it's a grief or maybe it's a, a trauma you need to work through. Maybe there is some chemical imbalances. But beginning to identify what it is gives you a pathway to begin to fight against it. Because it is a fight worth fighting. And it doesn't always feel like it's a fight worth fighting. It's easier to succumb to those feelings. It's easier to get, not get off the couch. It's easier to not move. But it's a fight worth fighting. And so how do we fight depression? How do we um, equip ourselves to be ready to and, and to win, however God defines that win for us, against depression? There's a couple ways, and it's, um, we're going to start with physically. Because you are an entirely integrated individual. Your mind, body, soul are connected. We cannot separate those. And so um, it, it is really important that we take care of ourselves physically. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, there was a, a couple years ago, I was finding myself saying this phrase, I'm just so tired of this, and I'm just so tired of that, I'm just so tired of them, and just so tired of blah, 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 blah. And I was just grumbling, right? And God kind of graciously like, revealed to me that there was a repeated word in all of that, and it was tired. And I thought, maybe I'm not tired of them, I'm just tired. Maybe I'm not tired of that situation, I'm just tired. Maybe the most spiritual thing I can do right now is just go take a nap. Maybe I've just run myself into the ground, which you know when you're tired, it's hard to think clearly. It's hard to, to properly order your mind and your attitudes and your emotions and your response. And so um, actually in the Old Testament, there was a prophet Elijah who was just running hard for the Lord, trying to speak truth, and it was, uh, it was not going well for him. He, he ran himself into the ground. He literally ran over 117 miles on foot, runs into the desert, and here's, um, here's how God speaks to him. First Kings chapter 19 says this, Well, he himself, which is Elijah, when a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. So he's depressed, he's suicidal. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. This happens again. He wakes up. Angel feeds him again. He goes back to bed. He gets up. He's nourished. Life is so much better, right? Maybe the best thing you could do, Betty White, would go be, get a Snickers and take a nap, right? There's some real genuineness to that, um, which leads me to my next point, which is eating right. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but um, the happiest person who eats junk all the time will feel sluggish, will feel unmotivated, will feel foggy, right? Your brain needs proper nutrients in order to think clearly and function properly. I, I, I'm very passionate about that. We can talk about that at another time. But along that is exercise. And there's been so many studies shown that aerobic exercise and anaerobic exercise are more effective than drugs at, at increasing serotonin in your body. It will literally do a better job. Not to say those aren't helpful, not to say those aren't necessary, not to say you may not need those, but, but you were meant to move. You were meant to be in sunshine. We live in uh, where we live. It's cold, but there's still sunshine, all right? We've got to take our wins or we can get them. It, it, you are designed to move, and I understand that may be the hardest thing, to get up and move. That feels like a huge mountain. Um, but the reason why we want to fight physically, and this is one of the things I say most often, um, is we need to take control where we can take control. Um, if you've ever wrestled with it, it feels like everything's kind of out of your control, 
Um, and, and even in different seasons, it can feel like everything's out of your control. Get up, wash your face, brush your teeth, do your laundry, clean the kitchen, right? Those don't seem like big wins, but as you start to take back some territory and say, no, 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 my life is not completely, there are some things that are entirely out of my control, and I understand that, but there's some things I can take control of. Win where you can win. Take, take back what you can take back, and it will help you begin to slowly move towards the other things that perhaps you can't control. Uh, the, the next one is uh, mentally. This is obviously the biggest aspect of how you can fight it, but it says, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, and it comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Whether it is depression, whether it is worry, whether it is fear, whether it is anxiety, it is the decision of are my thoughts and emotions supreme or is Christ supreme? Do I need to take what I'm thinking and subject it to God or will I let it be God? Just because I think it, and this is something I had to work through heavily myself, just because I think it and feel it doesn't make it true. Just because I feel rejected doesn't mean I actually am rejected. Just because you may feel alone doesn't mean you are actually alone. It's a process of taking what I'm thinking and feeling and saying, does this align with the truth of God's character and does this align with the truth of God's word and would I surrender those things? Sometimes we just have to take out the garbage mentally. Sometimes you just have to say, that's not true, that's not right. I will cease to believe that to be true. Sometimes you just have to take out the garbage. Uh, Another part of mentally is that we would pray. And I don't just mean pray platitude prayers. I mean, get honest with God. You're okay. You read through the laments of the Psalms and David and other guys are brutally honest with how they feel about the Lord. See, it's this opportunity where you can express to someone who clearly understands it and knows your heart better, say, here I am. And ending that prayer with saying, God, would you set me right? Now, it may not happen overnight, but it's certainly not going to happen without him. The other way is through gratitude. There's something really interesting that um, if today I were to tell you I'm going to double your salary, right? You're going to go into work tomorrow and you get double the salary you're currently getting. Like you're going to be pretty jazzed, right? You get jazzed when you get over a 2% raise that covers inflation, right? It feels pretty good. You'd be pretty happy. There's a study that says five minutes of gratitude a day gives you a greater response um, inside of you physiologically than getting your salary doubled. Five minutes of gratitude is all it takes to be happier than if you made twice as much money tomorrow as you did the day before. Right? We've talked about gratitude before, but it's incredibly important. The next big category and how we fight it is relationally. You were not meant to live alone. Um, you were not meant to fight alone. Um, and the greatest shot you have of making it, regardless of what your struggle is, if this has nothing to do with you, this is still true, whatever you're fighting in life, you will win best when you are in community. The problem with Elijah, the guy who ran himself into the ground, was that he left all of his friends behind him. He moved himself into isolation. That's why quarantine was so hard for so many people, because isolation, you were not meant to live alone. It's not just talking about marriage. It's talking about you are designed to be a relational creature. As I said uh, earlier from Proverbs chapter 12, it says, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Sometimes you need some people in your corner who are just speaking some life to you, being honest and saying, hey, God is good. I know this situation is terrible, but I'm here. God's good. I've, I've got you. It does something to us. Um, and there's Galatians chapter 6, 2, which says, carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
For some people, and I would say for more than are willing to admit it, um, the things you are carrying are too large for you to carry alone. They just are too large, which is why God has designed us to fulfill the law of Jesus or to fill the way of Jesus by carrying each other's burdens. Now, there's, there's something happening here in the Greek, and he doesn't mean um, that we take all of their problems on ourselves. It means that we help them pull their burden with them, that we hand-in-hand hand help them take their steps forward, which is a really important uh, distinction. One of the, the greatest contributing factors to me finding the freedom that I found, and um, I said this in the first service earlier on, but um, it, it went on for six years for me. Um, I, I, it started heavily around 10 I started to wrestle deeply with suicidal thoughts around 12, um, and I was kind of on the doorstep of making that decision when God kind of miraculously intervened through a friend, and um, I met the Lord and surrendered my life to the Lord, and, and that friend brought me into a small group in his house, and uh, we started meeting every w- week and eating little Caesar's pizza and Mountain Dew, which I don't know if it helped, but it was just what we could afford, I guess, uh, in your teenagers, so you think that's good food. Um, and we'd just sit around, and we'd read the Bible, and we'd talk, and there was just this habit in my life of bearing my soul to people who saw me, knew me, loved God deeply, and knew where to point me. I think if it wasn't for them, I don't know if I would have made it, to be totally honest with you. And so that's why we talk about small groups here. Because I can, I can know you, and I want to know you, but there's no way I can be the friend for all of you that you need. There's no way any one person could be the friend you need all the time, which is why community and small groups is something we continually talk about because you need people in your life. Because if this is the only thing, and this is good and we're so glad you're here, but if this is the only thing supporting your spiritual walk, it's not gonna go well. You need people in your corner saying, hey, what's up? <laughs> right, like you all have that friend, or at least I hope you have that friend who um, I call it the crazy filter friend. It's like, you can just vomit things out, and they're like, oh, yeah, you are crazy. Okay, but this is crazy. This is true, right? Like, you all know what I'm talking about. You have that friend who can just filter through your crazy. You need it, and you need to be that for somebody else. The other way that we're going to need to fight this is patiently. It may be true for you or may be true for the person you love that they wrestle with this for the entirety of their life. Uh, it, it may be that that's true. It doesn't mean we stop fighting. And it doesn't mean we stop working towards finding freedom. There was, there was four years after I came to Jesus in which I continued to think, will I ever break free from this? And, and glory to God, he has um, given me freedom from that. There's still times where like darts will come back and I have, to, I have to fight them off. But we have to be patient. We have to understand that, that God is going to do it in God's time. You go ahead and throw that up on the screen there, guys. The other thing about fighting it patiently is that you need to do it with context. Pain without purpose is really hard to manage. Pain with a purpose find, it feels a little different. The things you're going through may be for a purpose, and it may not be about you. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. Jesus actually said this to Paul, and he recorded it in 2 Corinthians. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus was telling Paul, Paul was trying to get rid of something and get rid of a wrestle. We don't know exactly what it is. Um, But regardless, the point is the same. God was allowing the weakness so that God's grace looked bigger than Paul's strength. Perhaps the reason some may wrestle for the rest of their life is because God is choosing to use that individual to make his grace known. Because if you look in at somebody's life who is 
who's struggling, who's going through a hard time, and yet they are still choosing to posture themselves in a place of praise, it makes God look really good. Because they say, oh, your life's hard and you're, you're still praising God? There must be something more to your God that I'm missing because when everything's rosy, it's easy to be a Christian. When everything's winning, it's easy to be a Christian. Can we find God's grace sufficient in that weakness? The other thing to, to keep in context patiently is that uh, for however long you wrestle with this, it is not as long as eternity. There will come a day when the things you wrestle with are no longer real. And this is what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed with us. He says, I'm not going to compare my life to others' life because that might cause depression. I'm going to compare my life now to the life I'm promised in eternity. And when I compare those two, what's coming for me is so much greater, it's not even worth comparing. And this is coming from a guy who was beaten with rods three times. He was whipped near death five times. He was stoned and dragged out of a city dead. He was shipwrecked three times. He was in prison for years, all for the name of Jesus. And Paul's been in heaven for about 2,000 years now. And I bet you when we get to the gates of heaven and say, Paul, was it worth it? Have his last 2,000 years with Jesus outweighed all of the troubles he went through? Like, of course his answer is going to be absolutely yes, right? And so fight patiently to know that if, if you put your hope and faith in Jesus, there will come a day where that all ends. Uh, as we kind of wrap up today, um, there's something in particular that has always helped me, and I, I hope it helps you. And uh, there's actually a quote in the book that kind of perfectly captures this idea, which has been a great weapon for me in, in battling off these thoughts and has helped many others. And, and here's the quote. It says this, you can't choose the things you face in life, but you can choose how you frame them. You can't choose the things you face in life, but you can choose how you frame them. We don't always get to call the shots on life. We don't always get to call the shots on the decisions our kids make. We don't always get to call the shots on when it's somebody's time to go home. We don't get to call those shots. God gets to call those shots. Now, there are times our decisions muddy the picture. But if we're being honest and we look at our life and we look at the things that happen, it can be really hard to say confidently, I know exactly what God was doing here. This makes total sense, right? Now, there are times where that's true. But I would bet the majority of the time when we look at the picture, we go, I don't really know what God's doing here. It's muddy. It's unclear. But what you can do is decide what frame is put around that picture. What are the borders and boundaries to your emotions, thoughts, and feelings? Where does the picture end based on a few things? And so I want to read some of these boundaries to you. They come, uh, they come right out of God's word. Um, and here, here's what they are. God is good and in control. God is for me and working everything together for good. God placed me here on purpose. I am never alone because God is with me. God will meet all of my needs because he cares for me. Nothing can keep me from God's love. This life is a vapor and my problems are small compared to what great things await me in eternity. My past does not define me. Christ does. I am forgiven, loved, and accepted. If we can take the things we face in life and choose to keep our feelings and thoughts about them inside of those frameworks... I get to walk into them differently because I can say, I don't know what God is doing. This picture isn't clear, but I know he is always good and he can't do evil. And so this circumstance, though it feels evil, God's going to work it out for good. Though it seems out of control, I serve a God who is never out of control. Therefore, I'm framing in my feelings to the truth and character of God. I'm surrendering my thoughts to what is actually 
true. See, because how you frame life really determines a great deal of um, how you walk, how you live. The kind of life you live is really determined by how you frame the things that you can't handle. Which leads us to our last point, that we fight depression by looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus. And I don't just mean we look to Jesus for platitude answers. We look to Jesus because of Hebrews chapter 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest referring to Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. We have a Savior who understands, who feels, who knows whatever your struggle is, and he sees you in that and empathizes with you. And then he's described in Isaiah 61 as this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We look to Jesus because really and truly he is the only way out of darkness. You can do all of the things that I mentioned before and they will help you. They will improve your life. But apart from Jesus stepping in and binding up your broken heart, you will be missing something key. The interesting thing about, about the story of Jesus and, and <clears throat> some of the passages I've pointed at is that Jesus shows up to earth, God in the flesh, and does, does wonderfully good to people around him. He heals the lepers. He feeds uh, the poor. He, he does everything right. And yet one day, all of his friends abandon him. One of them betrays him. And then the crowds start chanting that he should die. And he's wrongfully accused and murdered by the very people that he spoke into existence and formed in their mother's wombs. On a cross made from a tree that he spoke into existence. Dead. Now that's a bad day. Or is it? See, it depends on the framework you choose to view life through. Because on the tragic day when Jesus died is also the very day that death died. Uh, on the day that Jesus died is the very day that you were given the opportunity to have eternal life. On the very day that Jesus died, the way to the Father was finally open. And see, it really depends on how you frame the things you view in life. Could it be that the tragedies and heartaches that we face are the very things God needs to bring us to to bring about the greatest good in our life? Could it be that if we framed things properly, God would get an insane amount of glory and the picture would get a little bit clearer for us. Now, if, if you're here today and you are wrestling, um, a couple things for you. You need to find somebody. You need to start having open, honest conversations about this. And maybe you're here and you're denying that this is even true in your heart. I get it. I understand it. It feels weird to admit it. You need to. You need to find the, the healing process in front of you. Maybe you need to get in a small group and find that community to help you fight this, help fight whatever it is. If you're here and you don't wrestle with this, um, would you begin to lean in and empathize with people who do in a way that Christ would lean in and empathize with those who do? Would we be patient with those who wrestle? Not leave them to their own devices. That's not loving. But begin to lean in in an empathetic way. See, my, my hope and prayer through all of this is that the church and the body of Christ becomes an answer for those who are hurting because there is a world out there, one in five, and some in here who need that hope. And could we bring that
by being simply the hands and feet of Jesus to love those around us. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you and now we thank you that um, you haven't left us. Though the world seems like it's spinning in chaos and it's so seemingly out of control at times, God, it is just not true. You are good and you are in control. You appoint kings. You determine where they go. You uh, give food to the sparrow, God. You are the one in charge. I pray for every heart in this room uh, today that, that is wrestling with these thoughts and emotions that they would not feel guilt over them, but they would find uh, hope and peace and freedom in you as they wrestle. God, I pray as a church that we would grow in our empathy and our ability to love those who we may not be able to relate to, but we know that you do. Lord, help us be a, a body that really walks alongside and carries one another's uh, burdens. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would um, get great glory from today. In Jesus' name, amen.